And our reading is taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verses 1 to 20. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animal you choose must be a year-old male without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, heads, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, eat it it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day until the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly, and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all in all these days, except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because it was on the very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day, as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month you are to eat bread made without yeast, from the evening of the fourteenth day until the evening of the twenty-first day. For seven days no yeast is to be found in your houses, and whoever eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel, whether he is an alien or native-born. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. 
This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. In 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul says that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. Keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. Paul takes the the story of the Passover lamb and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and interprets those about Jesus and applies them to the Corinthian church. We're not going to do that this morning. I'm, I'm not sure why, but I just wasn't led in that direction. I want to think with you a bit about the Jewish perspective on the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and to use some Jewish resources to think about that because there is good stuff there which we can learn from. It's over 3,000 years since God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. Yet the memory of that act of deliverance is maintained and kept alive by the annual celebration of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Since the temple in Jerusalem, what the Jews called the Beit HaMikdash, was destroyed, they don't celebrate the meal with a Passover lamb anymore, but they, they do use matzah, unleavened bread, which is a bit like Rivita crackers, and maror, bitter herbs. These things form an integral part of the meal. Rabbi Gamayel used to say that whoever doesn't discuss the Passover sacrifice, the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs, has not fulfilled his duty. So as part of the lengthy Passover liturgy, the Haggadah, questions are asked and the significance of these parts of the meal is explained. Let me read to you. The question... The Passover lamb that our fathers ate during the time of the Beit HaMikdash, for what reason did they do so? Answer. Because the omnipresent passed over our fathers' houses in Egypt. As it is said, you shall say, it is a Passover offering to the Lord. Because he passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians with the plague, and he saved our houses. And the people bowed and prostrated themselves. Then the broken matzah is taken and they ask, this matzah that we eat, for what reason? And it's because the dough of our fathers did not have time to become leavened before the king of the king of kings, the holy one, blessed be he, revealed himself to them and redeemed them. Thus it is said, they baked matzah cakes from the dough that they'd brought out of Egypt because it wasn't leavened. For they'd been driven out of Egypt and couldn't delay and they also hadn't prepared any other provisions. And then the maror, the the bitter herbs are taken, and they say, this maror, that we eat for what reason? And it's because the Egyptians embittered our fathers' lives in Egypt, as it is said. They made their lives bitter with hard service, with mortar and with bricks, and with all manner of service in the field, all their service which they made them serve with rigour. In every generation, a person is obliged to regard himself as if he had come out of Egypt. As it is said, you shall tell your child on that day, it is because of this that the Lord did for me when I left Egypt. The Holy One, blessed be he, redeemed not only our fathers from Egypt, but he redeemed also us with them. As it is said, it was us that he brought out from there, so that he might bring us to give us the land that he swore to our fathers. And for them as they celebrate Passover, it's not just a tradition, not just a ritual, a form of words that's used from generation to generation over thousands of years. 
It is a recreation of the experience of Exodus for subsequent generations. What was true for the Israelites who were brought out of Egypt by a mighty hand and outstretched arm becomes true of every Jew who celebrates Passover here and now. What's true for them is true of me today. And it's not just transmitting tradition, it's recreating the experience of subsequent generations and making it real and relevant for today. The Jewish website Chavad.org has this to say about being Jewish and stuff about the Passover as well, because Jews defy all conventional definitions of a people or a nation. They lack a common race, they lack a common culture or historical experience, they all share rights to the land of Israel, as they put it, but for, a few, but, but for all but a few centuries of the last 4,000 years, the majority of Jews have not lived in or even set foot in the Jewish homeland. And so they say that throughout our 3,300-year history, what has defined us as Jews is a relationship and commitment. We are Jews because God chose us to be his cherished treasure from all the nations, kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It is the relationship between the Jew and his creator that defines his Jewishness. Not his acknowledgement of this relationship or his actualization of it in his daily life. It's not the observance of Torah's mitzvot, the divine commandments that makes him a Jew, but the commitment that the mitzvot represents. And again, there are truths there for us. What defines us as Christians is not what we do. It is the relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ because he's chosen us to be his holy people and he's established this relationship with us and we, we express that relationship as we walk in obedience to him and as we walk in faith and trust in him. The website continues about the Passover. A non-Jew who eats chametz, unleavened bread on Passover, has done nothing wrong. Likewise, his eating matzah on the Seder night has no moral or spiritual significance. But for a Jew, the mitzvot of Passover are a component of his relationship with God. By observing them, he's realising this relationship and extending it to his daily life. If he violates them, God forbid, he is transgressing. He's acting contrary to the commitment which defines his identity. And then in a typical Jewish analysis of different meanings of words, they say the Hebrew word mitzvah means both commandment and connection. The relationship between the words two meanings can be understood on two levels. On the behavioural level, we connect to God through our fulfilment of his commandments. On a deeper level, we are inexorably connected to him by virtue of the fact that he chose us as the object of his commandments. Obviously, these two levels of connection are two sides of the same coin, being the inner and outer faces of the same truth. Our observance of the mitzvot is the manifestation in our daily lives of the intrinsic bond between God and Israel. And that is, that is the case for us as Christians as well. We walk with God because of this relationship with us. And we do what we do because of this relationship that God has established with us. And our faith is expressed in different ways because God has made this connection with us. We are who we are because we are God's people. He's chosen us, he's saved us, he's claimed us through his son Jesus Christ. And that affects how we live all of our lives. And for Jews, the Passover ritual is a fundamental part of sustaining that relationship. It gives profound expression to their identity. 
Those who celebrate Passover identify themselves with those whom the Lord redeemed from Egypt. They are the people God has redeemed. They are the people God has chosen. They are the people who have this relationship with God. They are the people who express that bond with God by keeping his commandments and celebrating the meal. That's why the regulations for celebrating Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are embedded in the narrative of Exodus. Having predicted the plague on the firstborn in Exodus 11, you might expect the next step in the narrative to be the coming of the plague and the precautions the Israelites need to take to avoid it. And all that is recounted at the end of Exodus 12. But firstly, before that, in Exodus 12, 1 to 20, you get all these regulations about how to celebrate Passover. What to do with the Passover lamb. What to do as part of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they aren't really addressed to the people on Passover night in Egypt. They're really addressed to generations to come. This is what you are to do. This is how you are to commemorate this event. This is how you are to celebrate it in the years and the decades and the centuries and the millennia afterwards. The passage interrupts the natural flow of the narrative and it does so because the celebration of Passover provides a vital function. When people celebrate Passover, the Exodus account stops being history. It suddenly becomes their story. And the ritual so shapes and forms their identity that they themselves become the people whom the Lord redeemed from Egypt. There are lessons for us as Christians. How do we find ways of making the story that we read in the Gospels, God coming in the person of his son to save the world, dying to save the world, to forgive the sins of the world, to redeem the world, that's not history, that is our story. It's real and true for us today. How do we find ways of bridging that gap? For Jews, it is the annual ritual of Passover. And there is, there is a lesson to be learned in that for us, perhaps. In churches in the United Kingdom, attitudes for ritual and liturgy vary widely. You can worship in an Anglican church where everything apart from the sermon is written down in a book. And it's all prescribed. You just say the words. There's a richness in the words there that nourishes faith. But it's all prescribed from beginning to end. And you go to other churches where there seems to be no order or structure at all. It is spirit-led or random, depending on your perspective of it. But there is freedom there. What's fascinating, though, is to observe the way in which Christians who in the past have jettisoned ritual as being irrelevant or unhelpful are reconnecting again to ancient ways and traditions of celebrating and marking the Christian faith, because they're coming to recognise that ritual and liturgy can revitalise and sustain faith. So Jason Clark from the Vineyard Church, which goodness knows is not the most liturgical church in the world, reflects on how in our individualistic society we like to think that we are the authors of our own identity. And our worship can reflect that. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. No one else is going to give me words to say. I'm going to worship God my own way. But in practice, the idea that we we can create our own identity means that we are pressurised and driven by the demands of the consumer society in which we live. Without liturgy, 
without ritual to give structure to our lives, it's easy for us to gravitate towards whatever gives us a spiritual sugar rush. And that may be stuff which is shallow and superficial, based around issues of taste, personal preference, and the rubric of what makes us happy. And if that drives our spiritual life, if that's what we're looking for, then we're going to be more like a sparkler that burns out quickly than like a candle which is sustained over a period of years and decades. Jason Clark suggests that following liturgical rituals can be effective antidotes to the culture in which we live and can offer a staple spiritual diet which sustains us over time. He writes, Within liturgy, there is the invitation to participate, repeating and enacting together something as a community. This challenges us to order our lives around the shared historical beliefs of our faith rather than the challenge of the world that asks us to choose whatever we want to believe. Liturgy and ritual open up the possibility of reconnecting beliefs to their origin and the people who hold and practice them so that we can know and embody them too. Passover ritual connects every Jew to that generation that came out of Egypt those years ago. Those who celebrate Passover connect with their origins and it provides a scaffold for constructing a secure religious identity. It reminds them who they are in the sight of God. And in the words of Vincent Miller, adopting liturgical rituals moves us out of a world in which we are believers who hold beliefs and into a world where our beliefs hold us as believers. We are held secure by the rituals and traditions that we practice. Let me reassure you all, at our November church meeting, I'm not going to be suggesting we adopt the the Book of Common Prayer and follow that in our services henceforth. But let me ask you, are there rituals, traditions, things you do as a matter of course that provide a spiritual shape and structure to your lives? Are there things you do on a daily basis? And I'm doing this because I'm a Christian. Do you follow a routine of prayer, reflection, stillness, Bible reading? Something, you know, because I'm a Christian, I, I do this. It might be sitting in a certain place, it might be adopting a certain posture, it might even be making the sign of the cross upon yourself. What do you do to remind yourself that you are a Christian? Are there words from a daily office or from the Bible that nourish and sustain your spiritual life? Or are the terms of your relationship with God determined by whatever happens to be uppermost in your mind or in your schedule that day? On your phone or your laptop, do you have a daily verse that pops up just to remind you, yes, this is God's word for me for today? Is the Lord's Prayer part of your regular routine? On a weekly basis, how important is, is the, the schedule of programming in coming to church for worship and fellowship? Or is that an optional extra that's missed out all too easily? The problem is that we are all busy, busy people, driven by agendas not of our own making. And that isn't healthy. So let me urge you to build into your schedule some kind of ritual that enables you reminds you to create time and space for God.
Because whatever I do today, I do because of this relationship with God. And this relationship with God is sustained and nourished by what I'm doing. It reminds me that I'm doing it for him because he's chosen me and called me to be one of his people. If we don't do that, it's easy for God to get squeezed out and forgotten and passed over in the wrong sense because so much else fills our hearts and our minds. So those of you who are online, let me encourage you to Google the daily office and see what the Church of England or the Northumbrian community offer by way of resources to enable you to develop a routine of prayerfully making God part of your everyday life. There are great resources there. Remember a time when a colleague of mine was seriously ill and he said, I couldn't, I couldn't find the words to pray. So I started to use the daily office. And actually having words there that I could follow carried him through. Carried him through. So I'm not saying this because I'm pushing some kind of religious agenda. I haven't got shares in the daily office or anything. But I'm recommending the practice because it's good for you. Jesus talks about the pressures and anxieties that crowd in upon us. And he said simply, put God's kingdom and his way of living first. And everything else will find its rightful place. Ritual, routine, that carries us through those barren times, the times of wilderness. We don't feel like doing it. But we're going to do it anyway because the habit is there. And this is really important. There will be days, there will be weeks, when you just don't feel like praying. You just don't really want to go to church. But, but is your commitment to Jesus just about what you feel like doing? No, it's deeper than that. It has to be. When we come to Christ, like the Jews who celebrate Passover, what defines us is relationship. Our relationship with God. His commitment to us and our answering commitment to him, whatever form that takes. We don't celebrate Passover. We don't keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But what do you do to ensure that that relationship with God and your commitment to him are central to your identity? Find some way of expressing it that will sustain your faith when the hard times come. And they will give you the scaffolding that will help God to bring you safely through and out the other end. So with that in mind, in the, in the matter of connecting with our traditions and being part of a faith that goes back centuries and recognising that we belong to a church that's been going for a long time, I'm going to invite you to say the Nicene Creed this morning that expresses the truth of our faith and expresses that it's a reality for us as well. So the words are on the screen. Why don't we stand and say this together? We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. Through him 
all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. And so as people who find our place in the community of God's people through the centuries, let's sing our closing hymn, O Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end. <laughs>